Matthew chapter 28. We are continuing and nearing the end of our exposition of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, last week we began to look at Jesus' resurrection. And uh, this week we're going to continue that. You may remember last week we looked at a much larger section. And we really focused on the verity or truthfulness of the resurrection by considering the witnesses to the resurrection. And this week we want to consider... Why does it matter? What are the implications of it? Why is it so important that Matthew felt like he had to prove or provide witnesses to the resurrection? What's so important about the resurrection? Why does that matter for us today? And just confessing to you, uh, realizing my own weakness and uh, what a grand subject, I feel like we're just going to scratch the surface. Maybe much as we did the cross and the death of Jesus. I hope it will be encouraging, but... In no way do I imagine that this is exhaustive. And so I encourage you to continue to explore the subject. But for today, to consider in one message, what are some of the implications of the resurrection? Um, there were many that I felt like I were not was not able to address in the sermon. And Lord willing, on the back of next week's bulletin, in the Reflection of Grace, I'm going to uh, have a quote by uh, another theologian who gives several more reasons, some more things to contemplate. But again... Let's at least consider what are some of the blessings and implications of the resurrection. So read with me. We're going to read chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. That is the part that specifically deals with the resurrection. We're now having already dealt with all the witnesses. So uh, 28, beginning in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a grand subject we are to consider today from your word. And Lord, it's one that for Christians may be so familiar that we've lost some of the grandeur of it. But Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to just how amazing this event is, why it matters, how important it is. Lord, again, we ask that the end result of that is that we would worship you. And we pray that your spirit working would so far extend beyond the weakness of your messenger and even of the message itself, that Lord, you would bring this truth to heart and 
and all who are gathered here. That we would be in, a, in awe of our Savior and what He accomplished, not only in His death, but also in His resurrection. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Something I said there in my prayer, I think, is something important for us to consider that often when we think of what Jesus accomplished, we think primarily, maybe exclusively of the cross. And so one goal of mine today is for us to consider what did Jesus accomplish in the resurrection? Why does the resurrection matter? Why is that such a blessing for us? And I argued last week just in introducing, and I'm going to flesh that out some today, but that the Christian faith stands on the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. Another way of saying that is, if there is no resurrection, then there's no reason to trust Christ. There's no reason for Christianity at all. If there is no resurrection, then our faith is futile. And so, this resurrection, why does it matter? Well, let me just work you through what I want to talk about today. It shows, the resurrection shows Jesus' work of atonement was successful, first of all. Jesus actually accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Secondly, it shows that the Christians have new spiritual life. And thirdly, it shows that the Christians will have new physical life. And so those are the three realities I want to focus on. That the resurrection proves that Jesus actually accomplished everything that we've already rejoiced in that he accomplished at the cross. Secondly, that it provides for us new spiritual life. Third, that it provides, will provide new physical life for us. So first, the Father's acceptance or approval. If there is no resurrection of Jesus, then he's wrong and he's not God. This is why this matters. Why this is a major point. Jesus proclaimed that he was the Son of God. He said that he would die and that he would rise again. If he lied about dying and rising again, can we trust really anything that he said, any of the promises he made? Uh, J.C. Ryle says, If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Jesus was mistaken in the announcement that he would rise. If he was mistaken that he was the divine Son of God, and if he is not God, his death on the cross was not a true atonement for our sins. Only the Son of God could atone for our sins. If he was mistaken about the resurrection, what else could he be mistaken about? If he's delusional in imagining he's God, then his death and resurrection matter for nothing. And I alluded to this in my introduction, but let me read this passage because I do think it's so powerful. First Corinthians 15, I probably could have preached the whole message on the chapter of First Corinthians 15 that's all about the resurrection. I pulled from a few places, but here, first of all, verse 14 in verses 17 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says there, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so there I think Paul's addressing the very same thing that we've seen already that J.C. Ryle mentioned that I've been saying. But if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is a liar. Or he's crazy in imagining he's God. And he predicted his resurrection. If he lied about that, then what faith do we have? Our faith is futile. Even if we've hoped in 
Jesus for this life only, we're of most people to be pitied. I think what he's speaking of is what we'll talk about later, the bodily resurrection of believers. But if our hope is only in Christ temporarily in this life, like so many other great speakers, philosophers, religious leaders, if our hope is only for this life, then we're most to be pitied. Why? Because Jesus says if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. The Christian life is filled with suffering and it's not the easy way to go. But there is a resurrection. Jesus was resurrected. And since there is a resurrection, then what he said was true. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's really the Lord. He is what he claims to be. He predicted he would die and rise again. Why? Because he was the Son of God. Because he was holy and sinless. And again, for him to do so is testimony to that very fact. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. I think Tim does such a great job of summarizing that, doesn't he? Either he's told the truth or he's lied. If he's lied about the resurrection, if he's he's lied about everything, why believe this man? It doesn't matter if you like it or not. But if he's told the truth about the resurrection, then you've got to accept that he really is the Son of God. That all that he said is true. Now, I think with that, we understand that the resurrection shows that Jesus' atoning work was successful. Not just the fact that he said he was going to do it, and he did. But I think we also have to understand the relationship of the Father to this. I think what we see in the resurrection is the fact that Jesus did not fail in the mission that was given to him by the Father. And I don't mean to imply in any way that the will of the Son and the Father are separate from one another. God the Son, God the Spirit were united in this desire to ransom a people for themselves. But Jesus has been given a work. He's to go and live a sinless life and then to take upon himself the sin of sinful men, die for them to make atonement for their sin. If Jesus had failed in any way, would God the Father have resurrected him? Would there have been a resurrection? If he was a sinner just like any of us, just imagine any of us could pretend to be a Messiah. We could say, I'm going to die for the sins of all the people. And we would die. And none of us would be resurrected. Because we're not sinless. We're not God. God the Father wouldn't look on our work and say, well done. (laughs) We would be deceived. But the Father has resurrected Christ. He did live a sinless life. A perfectly righteous life. Always doing the will of the Father. His death paid for the sins of all who are united to him by faith. And so, and so, he's resurrected. The work has been paid for. I think even as we rejoice in all the benefits of the death of Christ on the cross, we have to understand if it stopped there, if there's no resurrection, then that doesn't matter. It's a resurrection that's, as it were, God the Father's stamp of approval. 
It's been accepted. Sin has been forgiven. We now can stand with Christ righteous before the Father. I think uh, Paul may have mentioned this uh, in his worship leading last week, but I thought another powerful point is that uh, it's also, now take this for what it is in relation to this, is we think of the benefits and blessings of the resurrection. It is assurance that God will judge the world through Jesus Christ. Now let me back that up with scripture. Acts 17.31 says, God, speaking of God the Father, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And for this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so God's fits a day in which he's going to judge the world. There's coming a final judgment of the world. And he's chosen a man who will lead that judgment, who will be in charge of judging all the world. Jesus, his own son. And the assurance of that, of this he has given assurance to all people. And what is the assurance that there will be a judgment? By raising him from the dead. Now, I bring this up because obviously this is one implication of the resurrection. But I think you also see something about what what God the Father has done in raising Jesus from the dead. It is assurance of certain truths. It is assurance that what God said would happen will happen. And I think with that we could say all the eschatological realities that we've already looked at in the Gospel of Matthew. That Jesus one day will return in the flesh... He will resurrect the dead, which I'm getting ahead of myself. We will be united spiritually to our physical bodies that will be glorified. And that God will, excuse me, that Jesus will judge the world. And there will be a separation from those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and those who have not. And those who have will dwell with him eternally in the new earth and the new heavens in his presence forever. Those who have not, will be separated from God's presence in terms of Him being there with them, but not separated from His wrath under which they will live forever, eternally. And so, He's given assurance. And what is the assurance that what He said, what He's promised will take place? He's raised Christ from the dead. And that's the assurance of that. And I think, again, with everything else we've seen, that's not just the judgment, but that's all those eschatological promises it's also the fact that we've spoken of already that he has atoned for our sins. And so, Jesus' resurrection, God the Father raising Jesus from the dead, is assurance of all that Jesus has said is true. That we can trust his promises, that he truly was the Son of God, and that there's salvation in no other name but in the name of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it speaks to a few spiritual realities for us. It speaks to new spiritual life for the Christian. It speaks as well to our standing before God the Father. It gives meaning to baptism itself. I'm going to incorporate all these. If you, The broad category would be that we have new spiritual life. God has given us new spiritual life and the resurrection is evidence of that. It is what secures that new spiritual life. And so Jesus' resurrection means... New spiritual, for lo- new spiritual life for those who trust in Him. We understand by nature 
that we as sinners before a holy God, that we are spiritually dead. We are born physically, and yet spiritually we're stillborn. We're spiritually dead when we're born. There's a need of spiritual life for all of us. But hear the words of Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin live in it? I could pause there and say, we're already getting an application. Why does the resurrection matter in terms of how we live? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We're not to continue in sin. Why? Because we died to sin. And the question we ought to be asking is, when did that happen? What's Paul talking about? How are we died to sin? I don't know if you guys noticed today, but you've sinned already today. Right? We're not dead to sin, are we? How are we dead to sin? Why would he say this? Here's his answer. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has excuse me, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the points of my sermon aren't as neatly delineated in Scripture as it is in the sermon. So I think you saw in this both speaking of the physical resurrection as well as the spiritual resurrection that we're spiritually made alive. But you hear verse 11 at the end, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, we focus oftentimes on the cross and Jesus' death, his burial. And we see reality in that, that we've died to sin in that. But also, he says, just as Christ has been brought alive, never to die again, death has no dominion on him, so too you are now spiritually alive. Those of you who have been united to Jesus Christ in the way he described in this passage. It says, just as Christ, this is verse 4 of Romans 6. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so I know this is so difficult for us to comprehend. But we have been united to Christ Jesus so that when he died on the cross, that was for our sin. And we are united to him, and in that way we died on the cross with Christ. But if that's true, we understand as well that he's buried and when he's resurrected, and he's brought to new not life physically, we too are resurrected to newness of life. And how does that work itself out? Well, one, what I'm speaking of first, and we'll get to the other, but first spiritually, we're made alive. We were dead in sin, but now we've died to sin, 
And we've been raised to walk in newness of life. How we live now is not how we once lived. In the foolishness and the futility of our sin. But we walk in new life in Christ. And of course it speaks as well to that physical resurrection that we'll address soon. This also means that though we will die physically, we will not die spiritually. Right? Though there's physical death for the Christian, there's not spiritual death for the Christian. God's word assures us that for the Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we have that blessing. But listen to Jesus' words in John 11. This is where Jesus comes to, we might call it Lazarus' funeral. He shows up a little late. Four days, Lazarus has been in the grave. And he shows up and we read in John eleven twenty one. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So, okay, maybe he arrived really late. Right? Five days earlier, none of this would have happened. But Martha goes on. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So that's the next point we're getting to. Martha has full assurance that Lazarus one day will be resurrected in a new body. I know he will be on that last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked her. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, that's a little problematic, right? Because Christians die. It happens. And so what is Jesus speaking of? I think we rightly understand Jesus to be saying, Though you die physically, spiritually you don't die. There is life for all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. There is resurrection for them. And Jesus will go on to prove that. How does he prove it? He does resurrect Lazarus. He brings him back to life to show that he has power to give life to the dead. Which then becomes a type of what we're looking at today with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does Jesus have power over death? Yeah, he's proven it, hasn't he? Not by raising one man, but by raising himself from the dead. And so that we now have assurance that though we will die physically, and unless Christ returns, there's no preventing it, we're going to die. And yet we know that that death is not final for the Christian. That there's spiritual life that we have that will never be taken away from us. That though we die physically, yet we will live on. And I've already mentioned, but the beauty of that is that for the Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's immediate. That we'll die here physically and spiritually. We will live on and be in the presence of Christ. Awaiting the day when he will return where we will be reunited to that body, which we'll get to, I promise. And so there, there may be even ways that I've spoken of this in two forms already. What does it mean the resurrection gives us life spiritually? Well, one is that we are spiritually dead and now we have spiritual life. We have this relationship with God. We can relate to his word, to him. We have communion with God that we did not have before. God has made us fit spiritually to relate to him. And yet also we understand that that means that spiritual life isn't going to be taken away. 
Spiritually, we will live on and be in his presence forever. And I thought maybe if I could add a third way in which this is true, the resurrection, I think, also assures us that we have the Holy Spirit given to the Christian that indwells us and makes us spiritually alive. And so the indwelling of the Holy Spirit also is connected to the resurrection. Let me show you that. Uh, this is Acts 2, 32 through 33. Peter preaching says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And of course, he's speaking of the blessings that were seen in the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit descending upon His people. But notice the connection. This Jesus God raised up, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Therefore, the result of Jesus' being resurrected is what? Where's Jesus now? It's back to all of that discourse, right? He's at the right hand of the Father, being exalted above all creation. And one of the blessings of such exaltation and resurrection is what? God the Father has given him the Spirit to do with as he pleases, and that Spirit he has lavished upon all those who have faith in him. And so, we don't just have spiritual life, we have God's Spirit living within us that gives us that life and assures us that we have spiritual life. And then thirdly, we have physical life that's promised to us. We have the promise of our physical resurrection. And with that, we could say glorification and physical eternal life. Now, against my better judgment, I said before I would come back to this. So I'm doing it. Matthew 27, verses 52 through 53. We read there, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I said when we looked at Jesus' death that we would come back to that verse. And I want to just touch on that briefly as we move into this physical resurrection. Why did this take place? What happened? There are a lot of questions that I won't answer. Uh, I just recommend for our elders, it's never good to, to be out of church. I know Dave is taking a much-needed vacation. But if you have questions about this resurrection, Dave Thompson, go speak to him. I'm sure he's always eager, as all our elders are, to answer your questions. But much is not given to us. For example, uh, we're not told, did they die again? These people were resurrected. I think it's probably obvious they did at some point. This wasn't probably some eternal resurrection. They probably didn't ascend to the Father in some way. Uh, but their bodies came back to life. How long did they live for? Who were these people? We're told that they were saints. And obviously, in, in our understanding, we know that saints just means Holy ones, those who have been set apart by God, it really is just a word for Christians. Okay, these aren't special saints like the Catholic Church might recognize special saints. God's word recognizes that all Christians are saints. The word is used interchangeably. So when it speaks of Old Testament saints being raised, it's really just speaking of Christians. So there were some Christians there in Jerusalem, that vicinity, who had been buried, who came back to life. We don't know for how long. We don't know really what all they did other than it says they went into the city and they appeared to people. 
appear to many, it says. Now, why does Matthew bring this up and what can we learn from it? Um, first, let me just say that it says coming out of their tombs after his resurrection. So it's brought up with Jesus' death. And then it says after Jesus' resurrection, they came out of the grave. So, again, I don't really know the answer to this. Why is it brought up during Jesus' death? Did his death somehow bring life to them? And then they didn't dig their way out or come out of the tomb until I don't know. But they came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection. It may be that his resurrection itself gave life to them, which would be, I think, consistent with what we see elsewhere in God's word. And so lots of unanswered questions that I'm going to completely avoid and leave to other men. I jokingly said, ask Dave. In all reality, if God's word doesn't address it, we don't have clear answers for that, do we? God never intended for us to know these things. But the fact that Matthew brings it up, I think, proves the truthfulness or the verity of it. Um, It would be absolutely foolish for Matthew to mention this if this wasn't verifiable. I mean, just imagine if I told you that, you know, uh, last month, back in July, in Hazleton, in one of the cemeteries, we had eight people who came back to life there. You know, they walked into Hazleton and they talked to a bunch of people. What would be the first thing you do? Who are those people that talk to these guys? You know, let's go ask them. I mean, there would be an obvious need for evidence of that. There would be some questions about that. And I think Matthew is saying this because it was well known to the people of Jerusalem that this happened. This was a historical fact. It's known that this took place. And so first, if that helps answer some question as what's going on here, I think Matthew's speaking to something that's verifiable, that's true. And I, again, I think this is not the final resurrection for them. I think they likely died and they'll be resurrected a second time. It's a unique experience for some. Why did it take a unique experience for some? Let me just clarify that I don't think this is an ongoing occurrence. This is directly tied to Jesus' resurrection. Jesus isn't being resurrected these days. So let's not hang out in the cemeteries expecting this to recur, reoccur. Why did this take place? What I believe is taking place with this resurrection is that we have a representation physically, a verifiable representation of the reality of what Jesus has accomplished in his resurrection. Jesus, in his resurrection, has conquered death and brought life to those who put trust in him. Not that maybe we needed that verification, but if we wanted some verification, look, here's an example that God can raise dead sinners. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, he can raise from the dead. He's done it. He's demonstrated it. There's those who have witnessed it. They've spoken to many in Jerusalem. They know that he can do it. And I think... That's evidence of what Jesus accomplished in the resurrection. But but also it's meant to help us to have greater faith and trust that there will be a resurrection of the dead to come. That if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you will be bodily resurrected. Again, I told you I could just preach 1 Corinthians 15 because I think it does such a great job of this. But let me go there again. Uh, this is a larger passage. You may want to even flip there. 1 Corinthians 15, where we'll begin in verse 12 and read to verse 26. And, and what I want us to see in this passage is that Christ is the first fruits of the dead. 
and for us to consider what that means. And so Paul speaks to this quite extensively here. Let's look at it. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twelve. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How can anyone deny that there's a resurrection? Jesus has been resurrected, is what he's saying. How can some, especially in the church, say that the dead will not be raised? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those of you who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I would love to spend more time even talking about this relationship of Adam and Christ. This mystic union. This federal headship. But everyone who's in Adam dies. And who is in Adam? Everyone who's ever lived. Right? Adam is that federal head for all of us. Just as All who are in Adam die, so also all who are in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, have life. And to be under that head, to be united to Christ, we are united to him by faith. So all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are united to him, and the life, that resurrection that he has, we have. And so it's spoken of as first fruits. And I think we probably have some sense of this from offerings in the Old Testament. But the idea of first fruits is what you bring in first from the harvest. So uh, we're at this time of year, which up here is always so late for a Georgia boy in my garden. But tomatoes, we just started harvesting some tomatoes a couple weeks ago. And you get the first ones, and always the cherry tomatoes are not the big slicing tomatoes. We've yet to harvest the big slicing tomato. But we've gotten some of the cherry tomatoes. And you get that first one, and my wife and I, we were walking through the garden. I think we got two that first day, and we got to enjoy them. And taste them. And forgive me, you guys can pray for me, before telling the kids that any of the cherry tomatoes were in the garden. We plant some really good sweet ones. And so we each had one cherry tomato and tasted it. That was the first fruit from the garden. Do you understand? The first fruit. But it's almost, as it were, a down payment, a guarantee that the plants really are going to produce fruit. There's more to come. This is the first fruit. And if we get the first fruit, we're going to get the second fruit and all the fruit thereafter, right? And so as we taste that cherry tomato, it's a down payment that there's more tomatoes to come and even some big ones. And so this is exactly how God's word speaks of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. 
the guarantee, the down payment that there will be a resurrection for all who have faith in Him. If we're united to Jesus Christ and God raised Him from the dead, then through that union, through that relationship with Jesus Christ, we too will be given new life. He's the first fruit. We're the big slicers that come later. It's coming. It's going to happen. And so we have this guarantee, this down payment. And likewise, we understand that our resurrection is dependent upon Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus isn't resurrected, there's no resurrection for us. But if He is, then all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be resurrected in that day. And it speaks there at the end. It says that He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, I could spend a lot of time on this. Just ponder for a second. I would argue Jesus has defeated death. How? He's resurrected. But, much as we think of Jesus' conquering of Satan, and Satan still has some dominion, some power, like a dog on a, a chain, he's still wreaking havoc on the neighborhood. But that power is limited. Jesus has already conquered death by his resurrection, and yet death still reigns over this earth. And so what does it mean until he's made all his enemies his footstool, the last enemy to be destroyed is death? The moment at which all his enemies will be clearly conquered will be the moment when there's no longer death. When Jesus returns, the victory's already assured. He's already defeated death, and yet it will finally reach its consummation of defeat, however you want to put it. It's full defeat when he returns and says, no more. You're done. You can't do this anymore. But the victory is already assured because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. So we're not sitting around waiting, saying, oh, I hope Jesus can defeat his last enemies. It's just a matter of time that he's, they're being placed under his feet like a footstool. The victory is already assured for us. In fact, again, 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say in verses 54 through 57, death is swallowed up in victory. So it's already happened. Past tense, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so death that we once feared, we've been given victory over. We no longer live in fear of death if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's temporary. In fact, spiritually we'll be present consciously. Let me even say it that way. Consciously we will be present with the Lord while our body rots away in the earth. And one day that body will be raised and glorified and be united to that spirit, that soul, and we will dwell with God forever. And so we have assurance through Christ's resurrection that we will be united to him physically. And look, I think this is probably something you're aware of, that you know, that you hold to. Let me just knock out a few scriptures. I'll just go fast, but let's move through that God tells us this, that he assures us of this. John 14, 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So even though Jesus is departing from the earth, he assures his disciples, you will see me. And again, I think that implies a physical see me. Because I live, you will live. And again, contingent on the resurrection. 
Uh, Job 19, 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. That after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. So here's Job longing for his death. Why? An Old Testament believer. And what does he say? Very clearly that after my skin has been destroyed, after my body has rotted away, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I will see him with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me. 2 Corinthians 4, 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. And so again, physical resurrection, mortal bodies will be given life through the spirit that dwells within us. Now, moving into application in some ways, but just consider that this truth provides us with a living hope and an inheritance that cannot be taken from us. That's exactly what 1 Peter 1, 3-5 tells us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this living hope comes through what? We've been given living hope because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. His resurrection gives us a living hope. And what is this living hope? It says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so the living hope that we've been given through the resurrection is what? It's eternal life with God the Father, God the Son, with God the Spirit, eternally. And it can't be taken from us. It can't perish. It can't be destroyed. It's unfading. Rust and moth do not destroy. And it's currently, right now, being guarded by God and His power. And it's ready to be revealed for us in the last day. And so, just as we think about application, how do we respond? If we rightly understand Jesus' resurrection, we respond by living lives of hope. And our lives of hope are not in what we get in this life. We have hope in an eternal inheritance that awaits us. Secondly, we can understand that Jesus' resurrection changes how we live now. I've already mentioned the hope that we just saw. I think that's one part of it. But I would add as well the new spiritual life that we looked at earlier. Previously, we read Romans six eleven. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The resurrection means that we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The life we now live, we live for God, not for the flesh. It goes on to say in verses 12 through 13 of Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. We belong to another God. 
We belong to another who is God. We have been resurrected. And so live for Him. Use that spiritual life for Him. And so, again, it changes how we live. Thirdly, we see Jesus' resurrection as a pledge of the Christian's resurrection and encouragement for them that eagerly await it. It's what we just looked at, but I think we ought to be encouraged that there is a resurrection. We have no need to fear death like an unbeliever would fear death. We have assurance that we will be present with the Lord. Fourthly, we should see this as an amazing good news. And if we rightly understand how remarkable this is, we should tell others about it. Now, Lord willing, next week we're going to start looking at the Great Commission, which follows. There's a reason, right? Because here's the good news. Jesus' death and his resurrection. If we rightly understand it, what should we do with that news? We should tell others about it. So that they can share in the blessings of the resurrection. That they too can have new life now, spiritually, and one day, physically. And then finally, I think, I have to ask, even as Jesus asked Martha, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That you could have life even now, that you will have eternal life one day? Do you believe it? As I thought about the implications of the resurrection, I would even go so far as to say the resurrection is essential for salvation. Even there's a need for us to believe in the resurrection for salvation. It's a part of our salvation. Listen to Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart, one believes and is justified And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so if you've heard this message, really what you've seen is the gospel. Do you desire these realities, these blessings? Well, Romans 10 gives us an easy answer to how we can have these things. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And so I don't think I'm going too far to say, if you've heard this and you deny it, If you don't believe that Jesus really was resurrected from the the dead, you're in a dangerous position. You're not saved. Because here it is, what you need to do to be saved. Confess that he is Lord, which I think carries with it the implications. He is God the Son. He is God incarnate. So believe, confess that Jesus is God and that he is your Lord. And believe that God the Father really raised him from the dead. And if you do these things, you will be saved. You will have that newness of life now spiritually and have that hope of awaiting that future resurrection when you will dwell with him forever. Let's pray together.